0: Going to talk about the devil this morning. So, if that doesn't get you jacked up, I don't know what will. Many of you guys know this. I like to hunt, I like to hunt lots of different things. I don't know what it is, I like to hunt, but not lions. Okay, I don't like to hunt lions. So, uh, uh, sorry, it just kind of came to me. I, so, it came to my attention recently. Uh, actually, the last time I was hunting last year, I uh, just kind of what goes into a hunt, like personally, what. How do I prepare for a hunt? And I want you to hear kind of some of the things that go into a hunt. The first thing is the night before, you shower with non-scented soap. See, you shower with non-scented soap because you don't want the animals to smell your Old Spice deodorant when you go out in the woods. And then you put on clothing that's been in a scent lock bag that resembles the woods. It looks like camouflage, right? It looks like the woods. Then you get up early to get to the woods the next morning before the animals get up so you're there before they are then you walk quietly to the woods my dad used to really get mad at me because I would just be like like you know just breaking every branch in the woods you walk quietly into the woods and you find a tree where you have secretly put a little tree stand that's well hidden in a tree so that you can hide from the deer in the woods and then you wait till daylight and you begin to use these little things that mimic the sounds of deer you know, like a, like a buck grunt call or, or antlers that make it sound like a buck is fighting. In which they will come out into the field and eat the food that you planted to attract them to the field. And on and on and on. And I'm not saying that I do this every time that I go to the woods. But what occurred to me the last time that I was sitting in that deer stand hiding sent free hiding in, in in a field that was planted so that we could kind of seduce deer to come out in this field, was that all of my tactics for hunting are based on deceit and manipulation. And as I began to think about that, I thought, hmm, because when you get in the woods, everything's kind of spiritual. I mean the Lord just kind of meets you there. I begin to think about our enemy, the devil, and how all of his tactics are based on seduction and manipulation, which brings us to our big idea today. This is kind of the big overarching theme of where I would say these three or four verses are going to take us today, and it's this right here. Satan desires our perception to be based on his deception. So he, he desires our reality to be based on his deception. And as, as we read these verses here in a second, I, I want you to think, because I know a lot of times we talk about spiritual warfare, unless you come from like a Pentecostal or a charismatic, more charismatic background, we typically, we don't really know what to do with that box. Like, ah, spiritual warfare, I don't really know what to do. And a lot of times it can kind of birth fear inside of us to talk about these types of things. But I think there's a reason why the Apostle Paul puts this at the end of his letter to the Ephesians. And it's because this is, a, this is kind of a victory chant. This is, a, this is kind of a battle cry that we have victory in Jesus' name. You think about it in the context of Ephesians 6, Paul mentions this and he says, hey, then pray for me because I want to go out and preach the gospel boldly. He's not hunkering down hiding out from the devil. He's ready to go forth. And so as we stand and read this word, I want you to think about that, have that in mind. We're going to be reading uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, finally. in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, meet us this morning. Your word is everything to us. Your revealed word about who you are and what your son has done means everything to us. Make this living to us. Activate our hearts. Give us faith to believe that this word is true. And may we realize that we are in war. And we've already won. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, what's our aim today? It's kind of two things. It's two things we're going after. Kind of be some subpoints under that because I'm Presbyterian and I like to be all organized and stuff. So, the first one is this: to, to identify our enemy and to get a good look at what he's like. So, that's kind of the first section of what we're going to talk about. The second one is this: to see how we're able to stand against him. Second Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse 11 says this, So that we will not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We are not ignorant of his designs. Okay, Ephesians 6, 11 says something very similar. Paul says this, Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, if you're anything like me, as I read those things, I'm beginning to wonder, Okay, what are the schemes of the devil? What are the tactics of our enemy? What are his designs? And so the first point of where we're going is this. Who is the devil and what does he do? Who is the devil and what does he do? So in kind of the the three parts that we're going to talk about about the devil is this. We're going to understand the enemy, understand the battle, and then understand his schemes. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great English pastor of the 19th century, says this right here, 19th to 20th century, I'm certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil has been forgotten. All, instead, is attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objected fact, that being the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. So what's he saying here? Frankly, As a culture, we are enamored with ourselves, so much to the point that we have forgotten about the war that's going on around us. Now, as we planted New City churches, we're planting this church, this thing has been birthed in war. Many of you guys know just personally some things that have been going on in my life. I know some things that have been going on in some of your all's lives. I mean, the enemy is at work all around us. And so we expect the enemy to attempt and to tamper with his work here in Lawrenceville. And do you know why we expect that? Because people are being rescued from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1. People are are coming into the light, coming alive. People are coming to faith in Jesus. People are being discipled. People's lives are being transformed. That once the the enemy could say, those are mine. They belong to my kingdom. Well, that's not happening anymore in Lawrenceville. This is why the enemy's at work. He wants to take back what once was his. And see, the thing about the work of Jesus is it's complete. It's finished. There's no taking back what belongs to Jesus. Christianity, friends, is an entrance into the war of spiritual warfare, not an exit from it. Many people think, oh, i I become a Christian, and now everything's going to be good. Well, actually, you've just kind of fired up the devil when you become a believer in Jesus. Everything's just kind of getting going. So, as we become followers of Jesus and we unite together as the body, we should expect the enemy to attack us, to come after us. He doesn't want us to spend time with others, he doesn't want us to spend time in God's Word. Our enemy, Satan, you know what that word means? It means accuser in the Hebrew. And then we get the word the devil, we get that because it's the Greek translation of Satan. And so, There's where he kind of gets his name from. So his very name means accuser. In, in, In Revelation, it talks about he's the accuser of the brethren. This is his tactic. He wants to accuse you. He wants to condemn you. He wants you to feel like you are worthless and you have no hope. But the thing we must know about our enemy is this. This is probably one of the most important things I could share with you about this, is that the enemy is subject to God. He's no match for God. He's not even close. So we we see two examples in the scriptures that talk about this. One is in actually the oldest book of the Bible. Job is actually older than the book of Genesis. And in in Job 1 and 2, some of you are familiar with this. There's there's kind of an exchange between God and between the devil before Job kind of comes into the picture. And the, the exchange goes a little something like this. The, the devil comes to the Lord and says, hey, I want, I want to tempt Job. I want to take your servant here. I want to, I want to see if he's really all that you, you, you think he is. And the Lord grants him permission. And he says, but he says one thing. He says, hey, just don't harm him. You can take anything else from him. So a lot of times I like to think about Job and think, man, there's no way that guy could have been in the will of God. He was perfectly in the will of God, secured by God in his promise. And God grants the enemy access to do these things now. And so he takes his family, takes all of his belongings, he's a very wealthy man. It's hard to think about. But the thing I want you to remember is this, that Satan has to ask permission to tempt Job. So he's ultimately serving the, the purposes of God. So the sovereignty of God, meaning God's complete control and reign, the enemy operates within the sovereignty of God. It's a very important thing for us to understand. As we were singing this morning, I was kind of, overcome with hope. Because I, I was beginning to think about all of us that struggle and, and, and tend to think that, that the enemy is, is after us and we, and we live like we have no hope. But the things that are happening in our life, the way that the enemy comes after us, these are all things that the Lord has allowed for our good and His glory. And I know that we can't understand it. And I know that we try, as, especially as Americans, we try to understand everything God's doing. But you're not going to be able to understand these things. You're not going to be able to understand why the Lord is permitting the enemy to come into your life and to tempt you in some areas. But what you can be sure of, as, as, as the Lord prays for Peter, so in, in, uh, in, in Luke 22:31, 31, as he prays for him, what does, he, what does he say? He says Satan demanded or requested to have you and, and to sift you like wheat. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, but I'm going to rescue you. I got this. He says, no, but I'm praying that your faith wouldn't fail you. So the Lord is perfectly content for us to be in the middle of war. In fact, it's for our good and His glory that we're in the battle. So when the enemy tempts you, when he attacks you, when he seeks to manipulate you, maybe the thing to pray about is not that we can escape it and get out of it, but it's for the faith to believe that the promises of God are true. Maybe that's the approach that we ought to take. In fact, that's the approach that I see in Job Luke 22 with Peter. Maybe that's the approach that we ought to take. See, there's this misconception that there are two great powers in the world. I mean, we see like this, this angel and devil on people's shoulders as we, as we talk about the conscience and things like that. The scripture teaches us one thing, that there is one great power in the world, and it is God. That the enemy is absolutely subject to him. That the enemy has no power that the Lord has not given him. Think about that. Now, Instead of causing us to be kind of on the fritz and like, God, how can you allow these things to happen to your kids? We've got our, our trust in God and his care for his kids must increase. It must grow for us to be able to understand this. Now, we can't get into all the whys of why the Lord permits these things today. We don't have time for that. It's not where the text takes us. But what I want you to, to understand about God's sovereignty is this, that we no longer have to chalk up all the unpleasant things in our life and throw them away and and dismiss them that the Lord is not using these things because he clearly is, he clearly is. There are two implications we need to take away about the devil. One is this, Satan has a lot of power in the world. The second is this, it is never without permission. Satan has a lot of power in the world, but it is never without permission. He has to come and, and beg the Lord to tempt us. That's a beautiful picture to me. I know it's kind of a heavy subject to get into this morning. But, and I think we we're able to grab this a little more fully if we understand what the kingdom of God is. Many scholars believe the kingdom of God was inaugurated here on earth when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. When he was tempted by the enemy. And the enemy tried to give him all these different things. And and, and Jesus kept going against these temptations with the word of God. That's how he defeated the temptation. Many believe that the kingdom was inaugurated at that point. That Jesus' rule and reign was established on the earth at that point. And so right now we're, we're in the middle of the already and the not yet. So the kingdom is here. Jesus reigns today in my life, in your life, in Lawrenceville, in the world. But he ha- he's not reigning fully. You see, what's happening is there's, par- there's a parallel uh, kind of kingdom course going on. The kingdom uh, of the Lord and his rule and reign, but also the kingdom of darkness is kind of still present with us. And, and the role of the church, why, why the Lord calls us to preach the gospel in Matthew 28 to the ends of the world, is because what happens is God gives people faith to hear the word of God is beautiful. And when they hear the word of God is beautiful, that faith activated by the word of God as they hear it, They become a new creation. And so what the Lord is doing is he is plucking children that were children of darkness and bringing, he's transferring them, Colossians 1, into the kingdom of light. That's what's happening before our eyes every single day. It's a crazy thing. We just think we're going to work. We just think we're punching a clock. Just, you know, going to the park with our kids. There's a war going on around us. And Jesus has won it. There's people coming from the the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light all around us. So what's this mean about the character of Satan? I know I'm talking a lot about Satan. We need to understand our enemy. Satan is not omnipresent. A lot of people think about, oh, the devil is tempting me. The devil made me do it. You heard that before, right? The devil made me do it. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not God. He's not everywhere. This means that he can only be at one place at a time. Now, is his influence more widespread than that? Absolutely. Does he have demonic forces that he influences absolutely but he's only one place at a time in fact in the scriptures we only have a few instances of the devil actually tempting people you know who those people are they're eve not adam eve jesus job judas ananias and peter those are the people that we see in scripture that satan has actually tempted himself satan is not omnipotent he's not all-powerful he can and will be stopped. And he already has to some degree. And, and what helps me as I think about this is Revelation chapter 20. From our perspective, kind of looking at the end times and the way that we see it is that Satan is already bound. He's already in chains. And he, he was bound when he tempted Jesus and Jesus overcame him. He met an opponent that he couldn't stand up against. He is bound. And how is he bound? Well, he's obviously not bound from tempting us, right? Because you and I meet temptation every day. Try, pre- try prepping a sermon on spiritual warfare. You think the enemy's going to kind of come into my office? Yeah, absolutely. The influence is all around. But Satan is bound. He's no longer able to deceive the nations. He's no longer able to stop the good news of grace from going forth. That's the only thing that saves us. Who cares what happens to us? We have grace, we have hope. We have this hopeful expectation that all things are going to be made new, even if they're not right now. And the last thing is this, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Even though it's like, man, it's like he's reading my cards sometimes. You're like, man, how does he know that that I'm tempted to go in this area or tempted to do this or tempted to believe this? Because I think most of our temptation is in our mind. And we'll look at this in 2 Corinthians 4 in a few minutes. It's in our mind we're believing lies And those lies, they they result in actions that are not true. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know anything. So why is Satan so crafty? R. Kent Hughes described this, and he gave an illustration that was very helpful for me that I want to share with you. He says this, I'm no genius at mathematics, nor am I, uh, but even with my limited ability, I could be great at math if I worked at it for 100 years. If I labored at it for 1,000 years, And learned all the theories, I could be a Newton or an Einstein. Or, what if I had 10,000 years and I just worked at math every day, right? Sounds like fun. (laughs) Given that amount of time, any of us could become the world's greatest philosopher, psychologist, theologian, or linguist. Satan has had multiple millennia to study and master human disciplines. And when it comes to human subversion, he is a master manipulator. Why is Satan so good? Because he's been around forever. He's been around since the beginning of the world when he tempted Adam and Eve in the form of a snake. He came up as a friend. Hey, I just want to, you ever thought about this? And most of the time he comes like that. We have a great promise though. In Matthew twenty-eight twenty, right after the Great Commission, Jesus he inserts this promise that most of us forget, and it's this. He tells his disciples as he sends them out, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So what if that's true? What if it's actually true, and I think it is, that he's with us always? That means he hasn't forgotten us when the, when the, the enemy is, is, is battling for our soul. And guess what? His strength over the enemy is powerful. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that that death has lost its sting. And how has death lost its sting? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So all the consequences of, of sin, which are ultimately death, have been defeated because Jesus overcame death by rising from the dead. This is how he's defeated the enemy. And we see that he's not omnipresent in James 4, 7, where he says, resist the devil and he will do what? He'll flee from you. That we have power in Jesus' name to resist the devil and he will flee from us. And the great outcome comes from Colossians 2.15 for us over the enemy. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Listen to this. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. Jesus has won, is winning, and will win the battle. So what is this battle about? Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So this isn't a UFC fight with the enemy, okay? I know a lot of you guys just want to take him to the mat. It's not a UFC fight with the enemy, but it's against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, some people have taken the scripture and said, okay, there's some kind of hierarchical structure where kind of this demon kind of owns this street. And he's, he's like always going after Mike McAuliffe's house or whatever, or, or he you know he's kind of in this area. There's this hierarchical structure. You know, that might be true, but I don't see enough evidence in the scripture for us to say that you know, that we're praying against specific demons of certain things. We just know that there's a great opponent, that there's an there's a evil influence all around us. So, so I'm not going to go so far to say those things, but it may be true, it may not be, I don't know. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, my friend Alan came and preached on Luke 22 with you guys, and, and he, he, he kind of used this story and said some things where uh, he was talking about... A lot of times we expect the enemy to kind of come in demonic kind of possession. Like, that's, like it's only the enemy if he kind of comes in that way. And I would say kind of in the Western world that it's rarely like that. I mean, I have seen an exorcism before. It's pretty wild, I've got to be honest. Uh, I've seen that kind of stuff. And a lot of times you're kind of questioning, like, is this valid? Is this legitimate? Like, I don't really understand what's going on here. Well, I've seen a legitimate exorcism before. But most of the time, that's not the way the enemy works with us because that's way too obvious. That's way too obvious in the place that we live. So how does he typically work? Well, he typically works the same way that he worked in Genesis 3, through deception. He wants to deceive our minds. He wants to twist and manipulate the truth. And if he can get us to believe a lie, then we're going to go on living like that lie is actually truth. So in Genesis 3, what does he do? He, he, he comes as a friend to, to, to Eve, and he says, hey, you know, God doesn't really have your best in mind. I mean, you can be God. You can know the things that God knows. Just eat this. Just disobey him. Just do this. And he tempts us to try and handle the work of God for God, almost always. You don't need the power and might of Jesus. I mean, look at Jesus. He's weak and feeble. He had to die on a cross. He tempts us to believe that Jesus actually isn't ruling and reigning. And ultimately we believe, when we when we fall into that trap, we, we, we are believing that Jesus will not come back as a conquering king, in which he will come back as the Revelation 21 conquering king. That's how Jesus will come back. His first appearance was an appearance of humility, so that he might, he might redeem us, he might atone for our sins. But he will come back to judge the nations. No question about it, he will. And the language here is we wrestle against flesh and blood. It's kind of this literal wrestling kind of term. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a physical element to our wrestling with the enemy. And most of the wrestling for us is a wrestling through prayer and through the word and with the church. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Thirdly, we've got to understand his schemes. So Ephesians six eleven, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Klein Snodgrass says this, Mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and deceit by which evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. Evil rarely looks evil. Hear that? Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. So, what are the schemes of the devil? I've got a lot of stuff I can talk about in this, but I'm realizing I'm kind of gone long. So I'm gonna I'm gonna truncate this a little bit so that we can kind of move on with this. But I'm going to mention William Grinnell in a book called The Christian Complete Armor, wrote like 1,500 pages on this. So if you're really interested in that, pick up that book. He's an old Puritan guy. You're going to have lots of fun reading those 1,500 pages. But he kind of says what are the kind of the six, I think it's six, most kind of obvious ways that the schemes of the devil work against Christians. So I'm going to mention those to you but I won't be able to go into a lot of detail. So when does the enemy kind of pursue the Christian? He says this, when the Christian is newly converted. So new believers, the enemy is not happy. And and his desire is to come after you and to deceive you before you're on a solid path of obedience. So before you've kind of got these rhythms in your life where, where you're able to discern truth from things that aren't true, he wants to deceive you before that happens. He wants you to believe that, that the promises of God aren't actually true. He wants you to believe that God is like other people in your life that have lied to you and not told you the truth. He wants you to believe that God's word is the same way, like, ah, can't really believe that. i got to kind of test that out. God's character will not allow him to lie. So he, he goes after the Christian when they're newly converted. When the Christian is afflicted, so when, when things are kind of going sideways in your life, the enemy is coming after you. He sees that opportunity as, a, as an option to tempt you into believing in that circumstance is because God is mad at you uh, or because you've done something that, is, that has caused God to kind of frown upon your life. He wants you to believe those things. He wants to twist and manipulate the truth. All the while when God has promised that grace is, is really good and grace has nothing to do with you. Like everything, all the benefits of grace for us, are all gifts from God. It has nothing to do with your past life, your present life, your future life. God gives the gift of faith to believe in this promise that there's nothing that can take you away from God. He wants to steal that from you. He wants to take it away. Thirdly, when the Christian has achieved notable success, we see this with Peter, and I think it's Luke chapter 22 again, when Peter has just had this, awesome moment where he said where jesus says hey peter who do you say i am and he goes you're the christ the son of the living god he makes this declaration and it's like this Oh, probably when peter was kind of converted moment one of those moments where he actually believes in jesus and what does peter do immediately after that he pulls a peter right he does he kind of doubts the work of jesus and he says oh jesus you don't really have to go to the cross jesus talking about the resurrection Jesus, I got the inside scoop. There's a better way. We don't have to go to the cross, man. It's good. And, and what, is, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Peter's like, Whoa, what happened? See, there's this notable success in Peter's life where he's kind of on a spiritual high. He just, to, he just went to youth camp with the church, man. You know what I'm saying? Everything is great. It's golden. And then you come back, and all of a sudden, life hits you. Notable success in your life, spiritual highs, the enemy's coming after you. He wants you to believe that that success is actually something you produced. In and, and whatever your life is. He, he wants to tempt you to believe that you have more to do with your life than you actually do. That you have more to do with your salvation than you actually do. He always wants to tempt us to do that. The fourth thing is this, when the Christian is idle. You know, there's an old proverb that says, idle hands are the devil's hands. Probably a lot of truth to that. I find it interesting that the kingdom of God, that we will be, as I I preached on last week, there's always work in the hands of the Christian. Right now, as we're seeing the kingdom of God advance, uh, there's a work spiritually for us to be advancing the gospel, preaching the gospel, demonstrating the gospel with our hands. We never see like the disciples just kind of like, oh yeah, Jesus just told us to chill out this afternoon, we're we're totally cool with it. There's always a mission at hand. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't rest We're supposed to have a rhythm of rest in our life. And you know what that rhythm of rest shows us? That Jesus is king and it's not up to us. That's what the rhythm of Sabbath is all about. But we're to be about the work of the kingdom, the steady progress of the kingdom. Idle hands are the devil's hands, probably true. Fifth one is this, when the Christian is isolated. I'm going to talk more about this in just a second on how we stand. And and sixth, this, when the Christian is dying. Not been near death, but I can imagine there's a probably two things that happen when you die as a Christian. Either there's a lot of regret or there is maybe some doubt. I've met few people that get to the end of their life and they're just so excited to be with Jesus. But the the enemy wants to come in and make you doubt everything about your life, especially at the end of it and you look back. And so when the Christian is dying, he will come at you. Just like, I mean, you think about Job's wife. Everything had happened, everything had been taken away, and what did she say? Hey, curse God and die. Let's get this thing over with. You know what Job says? Though you slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though you slay me. May that be our our cry as well. Moving into the second point here. I want to remind you this, though. Satan's primary objective is to make our perception based on his deception. Secondly, what is our stand as as Christians against the devil? Well, firstly, it it is in God's might through God's word. So Ephesians 6.10 says this, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There's a lot of stuff about him and not very much stuff about me in that. Did you notice that? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So I've recently been reading historical biography about George Washington. And it, I've, been, I've been interested to just see, you know, I have a lot of misconceptions about how our country was founded. And one of the things that I realized in this, that there was... Uh, There's absolutely no reason in the world that the Continental Army should have won the war and America should have been found. There's no logical reason for this. Think about this. They had far less soldiers. Many of the soldiers were bivocational soldiers, or they were there seasonally. They were relatively untrained, and and they were all, like, pretty injured, and they had... An inexperienced general. George Washington did have a clue. You know, he's, he's the person that failed the most out of any, like, general or, you know, kind of military leader in our country's history. He failed more than anybody. So why did they win? Well, the Continental Army had to play a different game than the Brits. You see, I think that they won because they had to reassess what their strengths were. They had to rely on what their strengths actually were, and they had to use a different approach to battle than their opponents did. See, their their opponents were used to kind of having this big military kind of regime and going out into a field and doing this big plundering kind of thing and just kind of taking over. Well, Washington had to learn how to hide in the crevices like a deer hunter, you know, and kind of go after your opponent that way. So what does this mean for us? It means this, that we must rely on what God has said is kind of the proven method for victory in spiritual warfare, not on what we think. We think it's like, hey, let's just kind of, let's truck through this, let's do this thing on our own. No, let's go to our knees in prayer and be strengthened in the might of our Lord. I mean, think about David and Goliath. There's nothing about David that was, I mean, it wasn't like he was like a master slingshot guy. Okay, no. It was because the Lord was the one that was protecting him. The Lord was the one that was doing the work, not David. Our enemy wants us to look inside of ourselves to find strength to overcome temptation. He's like, hey, look, man, you're, you're a great guy. I mean, you've got all this stuff going for you. He wants you to hope in yourself. Even like in Psalm 42, what do we see the Scripture say? Hey, when everything is going crazy, when, when you, we have no control, David, hope in God, hope in God. That is our only hope. That is our only armor that we have. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, I want to share this with you. For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So, what is our strength? What is our strength in the battle? What is the truth of God? Is the revealed word of God found in your Bible? Next week we're gonna talk a little bit more about the actual armor, like the components, the the I'm gonna I'm gonna dress up like a like a soldier with a sword and all this kind of stuff, and you guys are gonna come try to fight me. I'm just kidding. No, we're gonna talk about the kind of the components of the armor, like what the word what the revealed word of God actually looks like as it's progressing against the enemy. What does that look like? We're gonna talk about that next week. But but our strength, the the way that we're able to destroy strongholds, you know what strongholds mean? It's like a fortress. The enemy wants to build a fortress around you and keep you from God. He says the truth about God has divine power to destroy those strongholds, to tear them down, to make them rebel. That's what the power of believing the truth has for us as Christians. And if you want to look further into this this week, I want to encourage you to read Matthew chapter 4 and look at the temptation of Jesus. Look at what happened to Jesus, what was promised to Jesus, and how Jesus responded. It's very encouraging. Secondly, how do we how do we stand against the enemy? How do we stand? Well, we stand together as the church. One of the things that William Gernal said was that the Christian, that the enemy comes against the Christian when he's isolated. I would agree with that. Ephesians 6 13 says this take up the whole armor of God. That you, okay, the you right there is not talking about like, you know, just one guy in Ephesus. He's talking about the plural, the whole church. That you as a church may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. God has designed the weapons of our warfare to include one another. To include one another. We are part of, of kind of the army, the warfare, the body of Christ. We remind one another of what the truth actually is. If the battle isn't physical, doesn't mean that we, that we don't need one another. It doesn't mean we just kind of go to our prayer closet and fight against the enemy on our own. We do that, but we also fight together. Because you know what happens whenever I'm believing a lie? Typically, I'll be really kind of ashamed to share it with someone. And then I'll share it with someone like my wife, and she'll, she'll remind me, she'll be like, that is total garbage. Like, What are you believing? Like, Do you see the, the deceit of the enemy in believing this? That you're not loved? That you're, you know, that you're not you know, perfected in Christ that, you, that, that God is upset with you? for some, do, you, do you see the, the garbage that you're believing? And she's not condemning me. She just reminds me, like, oh, yeah. You, you uproot the lie, and you're like, oh, man, this is, this is a weed. Get this thing out of here. You can't stand against God's word. You can't stand against his truth. But we can't do that alone. Hebrews chapter 3, this, what I'm going to read you is this exhortation that comes right after the writer of Hebrews is talking about temptation. So what does he say? He says this. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what happens as we milk a lie and we begin to feed off of that lie? Well, our hearts begin to become hardened because of the deceitfulness of sin. Our hearts become hard and then the soil of our hearts doesn't receive the truth of God's word as readily. This is why we must be in community with one another. This is why New City Church is like a family of families. This is why we do missional communities and we talk about them every single week. Because we want your life to be on the life of other Christians so that we can remind ourselves of the truth of God's Word and not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why we do what we do. We've got to get our lives on one another in this battle against the enemy. And the enemy wants to do nothing else but to isolate you and to tell you that, oh, you can't share that with anyone. It's a lie. Satan desires our perception to be based on his deception. You know, in Martin Luther, in his study, there was this there was this huge spot of ink on the wall in his the place where he studied and prayed. And somebody asked him one day, "Hey, Luther, what's is this? I mean, this doesn't look that beautiful. Why do you have this huge spot of ink on the wall?" And he said, "I was translating the New Testament." And I could feel the presence of the enemy so readily in my office that I picked up my inkwell and I threw it at the wall. The enemy, at times in our lives, will be that, he'll be that tangible. And other times he will, be, he will be so seductive that we won't even recognize it. The irony of the devil's schemes, and here's where we find great hope, is this. Is that whether in Eden or in the cross or in your life, the irony of his schemes do exactly the opposite of what he intends. See, he, he, he intends to separate you from God. And, and God's like, no problem, you're separated from God, I'll send Jesus. He, he, desires to, he desires all these things to kind of go downhill for us. And God answers him every single time with this great redemptive promise that we get to embrace because he's a loving God that loved us before we first loved him. Ultimately, 1 John 3.8 says this, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what I want you to leave with today. Let's pray. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Oh God, what a beautiful promise. Father, help us as we, as we try to take captive every thought that the enemy tries to seduce us with. And to see it destroyed. By the power of the truth that is in your character, that you cannot lie, and help us to embrace this truth as what it is is truth. Father, we pray that you would protect us from the enemy. That's what you tell us to do in the Lord's Prayer protect us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. That's what you tell us. Protect us, Lord. But God, bind us together as we see these attacks from the enemy as ways that you're making us more into the image of Jesus. Father, we welcome, we welcome your rule and reign against the enemy. And Father, help us to remind one another, even this week, when deceit tries to sift its way into our hearts, that we are covered by the blood of Jesus, and therefore redeemed forever. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.